And uh, our friend Dick Weissman has showed up, and so we're going to start off here with some music from him. Yes, that song is called Joni and Reggie, and I'm sure that everybody caught on to the little Joni licks in there, you know, but uh, uh, maybe not so much on uh, Reggie, and uh, we have a special guest here, and he's going to explain this to us. Dick Weissman, so happy to have you back on the show, dude. It's great to be here. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, Joni and Reggie. This is from your brand new album. Right, no ceiling. It's no, called. no, no, no ceiling. It's called. It's got a lot of songs that people sing and a lot of instrumentals on it. And I noticed that all the instrumentals seem to be based around some sort of theme. And when you listen to the song, you know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, Joni and Reggie. Joni is, is, of course, as you're saying, Joni Mitchell. And the the most Joni part of it, I guess, is, is sort of the opening part of it. It's mm-hmm. sort of subdue somewhat and the tuning and the tuning is a little odd because the third and the second strings are both tuned to g and so what that does is that the pitch is the same 
but uh, without getting uh, too abstract, it doesn't feel the same because one string is a lot thicker than the other. But Reggie is uh, one of my favorite, not that well-known guitarists, Reggie Young, except to other guitar players. And Reggie played on literally hundreds of records in uh, <clears throat> both in Memphis for a long time, and then he moved to Nashville. And um, he was Jimmy Buffett's guitar player for many years, and played with everybody. Yeah, yeah. Know? I mean, he was—he's uh, the guitar player on uh, "Give Me the Beat Boy to Free My Soul." I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. And wow, sort of a. Uh, was a Steve Cropper type guitar player as opposed to say being an Eddie Van Halen. So it's not a question of playing as fast as you can or as technically as you can, but almost the opposite of playing as little as you can and still bringing color into the picture. So um, I think a lot of people could learn that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. But... Uh, yes, probably including me at times. But, uh, <laughs> uh, it's true. And uh, a friend of mine named Bob, Bobby Thompson, who is a wonderful banjo player, said about Reggie, he said, that boy could play more in four notes than most people play in a 32-bar solo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and another one of those musicians who played on so many songs that you'll never really know, you know, how many times you've heard a Reggie Young guitar solo that you remember. But you you, you don't remember him, but you remember the licks for sure. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, in... Uh... In the, the 60s, I think really up until maybe the last 15 or 20 years, um, a lot of people played on records and they weren't credited. So you'd see a group, you know, like Alabama, they could play, but they didn't play on their records. They hired Nashville guys and they said, well, it's just a lot quicker to <laughs> come up with this stuff and we can just sing, you know. And then they could go out and play, you know. And, and then there were other groups that really couldn't go out and play, but then they had to hire of the road people to go out and, and imitate what these guys had played in the studio. There were so many of those groups. You know, the, the Wrecking Crew out in California played on so many hits in the 1960s, you can't even believe it. When you see the film, the documentary, you go, oh, my God, they played on almost every hit that I loved out of California at yeah, that there, time. Yeah, there were maybe six groups of these people, the Wrecking Crew in L.A., <laughs> what they called the A-Team in Nashville, that was followed by the younger guys like Charlie McCoy younger at that time and then the Muscle Shoals crew and then the Memphis crew at American Recording and then at Stax there were really two different Memphis crews and it's funny because I was in New York in those days and New York didn't really have a single thing like that uh, you know it had maybe a core of 15 or 20 people that were somewhat interchangeable. There was a certain group of people that played at Atlantic Records, like guitar oh, player yeah. Cornell Dupree, and uh, Jerry Jamo was a great bass player, and so on and so yeah. forth. But then there was a whole other crew of people that were playing on like Dionne Warwick Records and stuff like that, you know. And uh, a lot of them came more from a, a jazz background, like Bucky Pizzarelli, who is I think 90 years old now and still plays. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you, you have a banjo here. Um, yeah. It looks like you've played it uh, once or twice. <laughs> once or twice. What kind of a... Have you had that banjo for a while or... Actually, that banjo was made in Boulder by Chuck Oxbury. Is that right? Yeah. It's an old ode. He made banjos in those days with aluminum rims. 
and I bought it in I think '62 or '63. You've had it that long. I've had it that long, and it's really funny because I refer to myself as a um, monogamous banjo player, but a polygamous guitar player, because <laughs> I've had guitar after guitar until about four years ago. I finally settled into one guitar, but this banjo is, has been, has been played all of that time, you know, on you know every kind of environment that that you could imagine. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about your 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 new book, but I notice in the in the in in the preface that you said it was the sound of the banjo when you first heard Pete Seeger play it. Is that correct? Yes. And you were just intrigued with the sound of the banjo. What was it? What was it that just attracted you and has kept attracting you right up to today? Well, I was a Philadelphia kid. I was born and raised in Philadelphia pretty much and um, stayed there in, until I went off to college. And um, the way that I grew up basically was that anything that I didn't, with, that I wasn't familiar with automatically became interesting. <laughs> and that's how I became interested in Colorado, actually, and New Mexico, uh, because I didn't know anything about them. So, you know, I mean... This was in the 50s and, you know, like Eddie Fisher uh, and the beginnings of the Philly Rock and Roll crew, Chubby Checker and, uh, you know, Bobby Rydell and the Orleans, all those people were around. And that's what I heard on the radio. And uh, most of it I didn't really like that much. Uh And so um, when I saw Pete Seeger, I had never heard anything like that. So automatically it became interesting to me. And... Uh, as I got into it further, and by the way, it has struck me over the years that uh, trying to deal with the banjo as a musical instrument, it's almost like a contradiction in terms, you know, like and you think of the violin, the French horn, the piano. Uh, but I think that's a lot less true today because there are a lot more experimental players out there who've taken it to uh, to a whole other level. But, you know, at the time that I was doing this, when I started, there were two people. There was Pete Seeger and Earl Scruggs, and that was it. And um, for So whatever, I imagine you got a few Pete Seeger records back at that time. I did, I did. <laughs> uh, the first 10-inch LP that he had, Darling Corey. And even before that, he had 78 RPM records out on the predecessor of Folkways Records. It was called Disc. And uh, Pete was great in the way that he would introduce you into other people. I mean, he had this whole way of talking that I don't know if I can imitate it or not, but I'll try. Well, if you really like this sort of thing, you ought to listen to Pete Steele play the Cold Creek March. So I was one of those kids that, okay, well, let me figure out. I'll go and listen to this. So I very quickly got into these, you know, relatively obscure people that later were more popularized by like the New Lost City Ramblers, people like Pete Steele and Wade Ward and Justice Begley, who was the sheriff of Hazard County, Kentucky, and played his banjo to win win his elections. You know, those kind of people kind of fascinated me. Again, because it was so far away from anything that I knew, you know, and then I went to, I bought a banjo and uh, I figured, well, I played a piano because I'd had about seven years of classical piano lessons so how hard can this be to tune it i immediately broke two strings <laughs> and put the banjo in the closet every banjo player understands this thing yeah yeah, yeah i guess uh, probably every string player really, yeah. <laughs> it's a fact or, or a horn player with their reeds you know why am i not getting a sound out of this thing you know 
So I went off to college in Vermont, and I went to a school called Goddard College. And uh, it's not a resident college anymore, although you still can go there and do most of the work at home. And the only parallels I can think of, Evergreen State and Olympia is like this. There are no grades. There's And after two years, you had to reapply to get into school. And since there were no grades, about 40% of the people were not readmitted because they said, hey, no grades. <laughs> I don't even have to, I might not even have to go to classes, let alone study, you know. And uh, so um, there was a, a girl who played the banjo and I, she was my best friend's girlfriend. And one day I said to her, you know, I always really wanted to play the banjo. I said, do you have one? And I said, yeah. So she said, well, next time you go home, bring it back and I'll show you how to play. So that was how oh, yeah. I, I started on the banjo, really. So what are you going to play for us here? I'm going to play something off the record oh, called great. Borderlands Blues. And there's two parts of this that are interesting to me, I mean, which is why I did it. The whole record really is a series of contrasts. And, and um, I don't know whether it was my mood because of the social political mode in this country, but I started combining things that don't go together, like Joni and Reggie. Ah. And I have a tune I know that you played once called Motown Cowboy. We're going to play that sometime during this. Great. That one just cracked me. It just so they're, immediately. So they're just sort of combinations of things that aren't supposed to go yeah. together. And so Borderland Blues, first of all, not too many people play blues on the banjo. And when they do, to be honest, it doesn't usually sound very good. They, <laughs> they tend to do this sort of bending stuff a lot. And it always sounded sort of corny to me to do that. So the other thing is that I've always been interested in blues in a minor key. And there are certain people that did that, the, the so-called swamp blues players at Excello, Lightning Slim and all those people, and a piano player named Walter Davis in the 40s. So this is a minor blues on the banjo, and it's called Borderland Blues because it's got a little bit of a, of a Mexican border flavor to it.
Yeah, Borderland Blues. Yeah, and on the record, there's a guitar player named Thad Beckman uh, who played with me. A lot of the record was done in Portland. Some of it was done here. Oh, okay. Most of the things that were done here were the vocal things. Uh, so there's sort of a basic track, and uh, one of them has Molly O'Brien, and uh, uh, Harry Tuft is, is on another one, and, and one they sing together, and one that I'm on with Harry. Both people that everybody here at KGNU knows of. Uh, indeed. And, uh, you know, I was trying to remember, I think the first time we met, we were on the bus going to Denver. <laughs> yes, and my you, UCD days. And, you were, yeah, and you were a professor. We sat next to each other. We started talking and found out, whoa, we have a couple of things in common. Um, I'd like to play this one song. I'd, I'd like to play sure. this. This, uh, this is uh, the song that immediately... The instrumental immediately grabbed me because it picks on a little riff that's one of my favorites from the from the past, and then you add a bunch of different things to it. This is a this is a song called Cowboy Motown. Whoop. Absolutely, the first time I've ever heard a Motown song done with a bassoon. <laughs> Dick, where did you come up with this? Well, where did you come up with this one? There's this friend of mine in Portland, which is largely why the, the last three records I've done have been mostly recorded in Portland, with some of them recorded here. But this fellow's name is Mitch Amori, and he grew up in Tokyo, and when he was 10 years old, his father worked for Sony, and he brought Pete Seeger records home. 
So Mitch started to play the banjo. And he had an older brother who was a conductor, classical music conductor. And his brother said, you must study serious music. So he went to the Eastman School in Rochester and got a degree in oboe. So this is what this guy plays, I mean, that I know of. He plays oboe, English horn, oboe d'amour, which is what on the Sonny and Cher record, I Got You, Babe. That's an oboe d'amour. He plays flute. He plays alto flute. He plays clarinet, bass clarinet, bassoon. And uh, he plays the whole saxophone family as well. And to show you, so anyway, the, the essence of the Motown cowboy thing is it comes from this sort of social political thing we were talking about where a, say, a 20-year-old harmonica player, a young Bob Dylan, walks into the Motown studios and he, saw, he sees all these cats like James Jamerson, the bass player, and uh, the drummer and so on, Benny Weiss, and um, the guitar players and so on. And they look at him and, you know, sort of say, well, what can you do? You know, so he takes out his harmonica and he starts to play. And one of the guitar players puts down his electric guitar, picks up an acoustic, starts to play with him. And then they say, OK, this is good as far as it goes. But, you know, what about the funk part? You know, So then they get to that part and that's where the bassoon is playing that Motown figure, you know. And then the banjo on top of it is also sort of like... Another person, me, that wanders in, you know, oh, yeah, this sounds pretty interesting, you know. <laughs> wonderful stuff. Really, truly wonderful stuff. Um, also, want to talk a little bit about, uh, I got this, uh, just got this the other day, A New History of American and Canadian Folk Music by Dick Weissman. And in the preface, you say, it would be fair to say that I fall somewhere between a participant <laughs> and a scholarly observer of American folk music. <laughs> no, I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair assumption. I think that uh, as we've heard just right here, you're, you've been obsessed with music almost all of your life, and folk music in particular. Right. That, that's, that's true, for sure. And uh, um, a lot of things happened early that were strange. I had this sort of classical background, and then I was a semi-professional ping-pong player when I was 15 and 16. And that's how I got to New York. I would go to New York to play in tournaments. In and ping-pong tournaments? Yeah, ping-pong tournaments. They were really big back then. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, my big rivals were in New York because they were, they were good players in Philly, but it's just like music, there's so much more in New York. So they were all bebop freaks. So that's how I heard, like, you know, Charlie Parker and I heard Thelonious Monk. And I had not known who these people were, you know, so that's how I got into the jazz part of it. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and then, now, you've written a lot of books. Yeah, yeah. Um, more. Maybe too many. <laughs> <laughs> but you still keep coming out. I mean, I, I've, I've read your autobiography. Uh, I read a book about um, books about folk music, right? Yeah, was yeah. It, it was books sort about of a bibliography of bibliography. Bibliography, yeah. I yeah. read that one. Yeah. And now this one, um, uh, you you talk a little bit. I, I, I didn't get to read the whole thing about controversies around Folk, yeah, uh, around absolutely. folk music, and you were kind of in the middle of all that. I mean, you you were in Greenwich Village before Bob Dylan got there. I was, I was. When and, did you first come to the village? Well, 
when I was in college in my junior and senior year, Goddard used to have a winter work term. So my junior year, I worked in New York. <laughs> and in my senior year, I was writing my thesis on Leadbelly. It's called Leadbelly's Life and His Music. And so I arranged, I was in New York for actually four months doing research and talking to people. And I knew Tiny Ledbetter, who was Ledbelly's niece. Ledbelly had already died. Ledbelly died in 1949, so I never, ever met him or saw him. But I did once meet his wife at a, at a party, which is a whole other odd story, but uh, was is at her house. She stayed in the house they had lived in, and Tiny lived in the floor below her. And Tuesday nights, I would go over there, and Gary Davis would play guitar. So that was one of the ways that I got into... Um, you know, uh, Piedmont guitar and gospel music and, and all that sort of thing. And uh, all of the young Turks were there, like Eric Darling, who was later in the Tires and the Weavers, he was there. The only time I ever saw Woody Guthrie was at that house. And it was just, you'd go there and play. And uh, mostly Gary would hold court and you'd try to keep up with him as best you could. <laughs> and I never played guitar with him because I didn't play guitar that well at that time. So I always played banjo. And here's what Gary was like. There was another banjo player who played with him somewhat regularly, which I did not. And I played something with him. It was a tune called, Oh, Lord, Search of My Heart, So I Know When I'm Right and When I'm Wrong. So at the end of the tune, Gary looks at the other banjo player and he says, Why don't you play like that? So that was his idea of a compliment. He didn't say that was nice or, you know, I like the way you did that. It was like he said to the other guy, why don't you play like that? So that was okay. You know, I, I got it. You know, that was, that was fine with me. But as far as the controversies go, I was not only in the middle of it, I was at both ends of it. Like in, in the early days, I was sort of a, a super purist. And, you folk know, Nazi, you called yeah, yourself folk in, the, Nazi. in the book here. Like, like groups like the Kingston Trio and... And the Brothers Four were like a joke to me at that time. And because um, I was listening to these people like Pete Steele and Wade Ward that never made commercial records. Right. Uh, they were, you know, or Gary Davis or, or you know, uh, obscure uh, blues players from, you know, contemporaries of Robert Johnson, but not famous, that kind of thing. And then I uh, met John Phillips uh, and John Phillips had been in a uh, sort of pop jazz group called the Smoothies. And they were doing like high-low type harmony stuff. And he decided this was never going to get anywhere. <laughs> so he decided to start a folk group. And so he went down to the Greenwich Village and he went to the Folklore Center, which was, by the way, the inspiration for Harry Tuff's story, the Denver Folklore Center, mm -hmm. was the Folklore Center on McDougal, McDougal Street in Greenwich Village. And... Um, he said to the owner, as a young, he said, I need a guy who plays banjo and knows a lot about folk music because I don't know much about it. So that's how I met John Phillips. And uh, we were in a band called The Journeyman. So suddenly I'm in the middle of, I'm in the middle of the enemy camp, right? Trying to make hit records. You've become the Kingston Trio. I've become the enemy, right. Now, I, I will say that at least our repertoire was, shall we say, a little more enlightened than, than most of those groups were. Like I brought in a country blues that I had learned from Doc Boggs and uh, a tune called Loading Coal by Merle Travis. And, you know, groups like the Brothers Four were not doing this kind of music. But, you know, to be honest, the arrangements we were doing were 
uh, certainly as much pop as they were folk. And that was John and his endless ability to come up with vocal parts. You know, if he saw four dogs, he'd teach them four parts and have them sing. I mean, he just had that uh, that capability, you know. And so um, basically he did the vocal arrangements and I did the instrumental arrangements. Not a lot of the records I overdubbed. It was the beginning of three and four track recording. And I was playing banjo and guitar on a lot of the cuts. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh it isn't just an instrumental album. No, it's not just an instrumental album. You got you got a bunch of songs on it that uh, that have a little bit of uh, um, contemporary, we'll say, uh, lyrics to them. Yeah, um, I thought maybe we might play one of those. Um, let's see if I got the right one here. Yeah, um, this is a. a uh, Dick Weissman's, I don't know if it's a comment, perhaps a comment on living in Colorado these days. <laughs> oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam. You can sit in a brew pub all day. There's latte and wine. And the skiing is fine And on Sundays the Broncos will play New homes on the range Where the fracking takes place every day I just want a piece of a mineral lease We'll make this old Property pay. There's sun in the sky. It's the Rocky Mountain high. I think we'll go camping tonight. We'll find a nice spot to smoke legalized pot. We'll inhale through the dawn's early light. The fracking takes place every day I just want a piece of a mineral lease We'll make this old property pay And veil, they tell many a tale of the riches built up overnight. Dude, do your own thing. Where money is king, keep poverty way out of sight. Everybody, new homes on the range where the fracking. Place every day. I just want a piece of a mineral lease. We'll make this old property pay. Yes, we'll make this old property pay.
Ah, oh, yes. Life in Colorado in uh, almost 2020. And uh, what was the impetus for that particular one, Dick? Well, we lived in Oregon for about 10 years. We came mm-hmm. back here uh, just not quite seven years ago. And the amount of uh, the increase in traffic and population uh, just startled me. You know, I, I would. You mean it was different from when you left? <laughs> just a little bit, you know. And then our, our pro development mayor in Denver, who uh, never saw a park that he couldn't dismantle and turn into a cafe or an apartment house, uh, it just was really quite startling. And by the way, the same thing is going on in Portland, but maybe to a somewhat lesser degree. But uh, I've been back there a few times, and I probably could have written a similar thing. Um, that was Alan Jones, who was my boss at uh, Portland Community College, singing. Okay. Who plays in a lot of country okay. rock groups. So I thought he was perfect for doing Home on the Range. And then um, the group vocal, um, I was talking about my friend Mitch Amori. So when we got to that, I wanted the whole band to sing because I wanted to get this feel. So I looked at Mitch and I said, do you sing? He said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I've gotten to where I no longer ask him if he can do something. I just assume that he can. <laughs> so we call it the Sing Along with Mitch Amori Chorus after Mitch Miller. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. yeah. One of my first records, Sing Along with Mitch. That was um, Okay. So we've been talking with uh, Dick Weissman. We've been hearing some music. We'll hear a little more. Uh, he's got a new book out, The New History of American and Canadian Folk Music, with a lot of his own insights into that particular world. Boy, there's a lot, a lot there, that's for sure. His uh, new album is called No Ceiling, and we've heard a couple of songs from it. And uh, what, do you got, uh, what do you got to close out for us here? I think I'll do Shave Vladimir, which is another one of these, the fantasy of, you know how in, in the courts and the medieval... T- days that there were court musicians, uh, you know, lutenists and singers and viol players and stuff like that. So this is sort of my fantasy that Vladimir Putin has a court banjo player, you know, to amuse himself with. (laughs) Dick Weissman.
Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Weissman, always a pleasure to have you on the show, Dick. Thank you. And we'll get back to the music here. Um, it's 1051 right here uh, along the front range. And I'm not sure what I got planned about this, but we'll, uh, but we'll see here. Uh, this is what live radio is actually like. <laughs> oh, you know what, I, Leland, I have to tell you this story. Tell us the story. There's uh, an ad agency in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So they gave a Christmas present to the people of Halifax. And the present was to take a full page in a newspaper ad and billboards all over the city with no copy. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that a lot. You can't get upset about that. No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Once again, Dick Weissman, thanks a lot.